This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our very good friends at Oro Recovery. What is Oro Recovery? Oro Recovery is a treatment center created by Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission to create a place that treats people, addicts, alcoholics with connection and compassion rather than control. Their team has decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders. They make sure that whatever you're kicking is as comfortable as possible a process, which is the best. The best kind of kick is always a comfortable kick. Everyone that I know that's been to Oro only says good things, which means the world. And their amenities are out of hand. Equine therapy, surfing, the fucking potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge, sound bath meditation, you name it, they have it. It's a great place. Check them out at ororecovery.com. And if you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get better, I cannot suggest going to Oro enough. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our good friends at Sober Buddy. The holidays are coming up. Are you concerned? I'm not concerned. Well, maybe I'm concerned a little bit. On Monday, the Sober Buddy team is having a special Zoom where people can come in and talk about some fears and talk about some strategies in dealing with the holiday. What is Sober Buddy in general? It's an app that helps you stay sober. It's a community. It's a team. It's a bunch of people committed to making your sobriety easy and better and more manageable. They have challenges to help you maintain your mindfulness. The app is available at the App Store and the Google Play Store. You get seven days free, plus they have a free sober tracker for sharing and boasting and being proud of your clean time, which we all love to do. Go to YourSoberBuddy.com and check it out. Message me if you want to come to the Zoom on Monday. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends in Pink Cloud. Pink Cloud was created in 2016 by a person who was in recovery. Jason Voorhees had only three days. Inspiration for Pink Cloud came to Jason while at a meeting. After inquiring about where to go to find his next meeting, he was informed by another member that all that existed were primarily intergroup websites that were outdated and difficult to navigate. The member jokingly suggested that he create something. Jason took this to heart and put his background in computer programming to work. Six years later, the Pink Cloud app has over 245,000 anonymous meetings for users to choose from, leaving no one with the excuse that they couldn't find a meeting. The 12-step meetings available include AA, NA, Crystal Meth A, Al-Anon, and Alateen. It's all completely anonymous. There are no profiles. 
logins, or usernames. The app isn't connected to social media and under no circumstance is any data collected from users. In addition, the app now has a growing set of tools available for users. The Sober Toolbox includes the ability to bookmark and track meeting attendance, watch for resentments, take inventories, create prayers, and keep a journal. 330,000 people have been using the app in over 99 countries. And most importantly, the app is free. You go to gopinkcloud.com, find your meetings, get in there, do your thing, gopinkcloud.com. All right, enough with these ads. Here's the fucking show. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And my name is Dave, and I am in the uh, the ex Dopey studio at home, and um, it's an honor to be here doing the show. And I hear from so many people that I have to just say I love hearing from everybody. I love it when we get emails. I love it when we get voicemails. I love it when people just send notes. It is. Uh, it makes me feel good, so thank you for doing it. If you want to be included on Dopey, send in an email or a voicemail to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Oh, shit, you need to go fucking sign up for Patreon. Patreon is where the true dopes go, and right now on Patreon is the video of DopeyCon. If you are dying to see what it looks like, all you have to do is spend two bucks. I mean, that's for the cheapos. People with money can spend more. Real quick, Patreon tiers. Two bucks, you get content, tons of content. Five bucks, and content includes bonus interviews, music, animation, video. It's a ton of fucking content. You think content grows on trees? And then for five bucks, you get all the content, plus entree to the dopey Patreon Zoom, where we play games and have fun. Uh, for And... You don't get stickers for five bucks. For 10 bucks, you get stickers, but you have to remind me like three times. And then you get stickers. And for 15 bucks, you get socks and stickers and all the other stuff. And the DopeyCon video is up. Some bonus Ask Aaron is up. Last two weeks ago, we had the Ketamine Doctors, where you can learn about how to treat depression with ketamine. This week, the MC Search Opus is going up, but you need to check out the DopeyCon video if you weren't there. And if you were there, it's like a trip down memory lane, which is very nice. Everybody talks about um, this strong community we have built, which I think is very nice. And, and I you know, the intention was never to build a strong community. The community developed, and you guys have built it yourselves. So I want to give you guys, you know, a lot of credit and gratitude for building this dopey nation, which is fucking incredible. It seems like that's all anybody wants these days is a community. Everybody wants a community and, and we are lucky enough to have one. And if you guys are listening to the show and are not in touch with the dopes, the easiest way to get in touch with the dopes is to go to the dopey nation fan page on Facebook, unless you hate Facebook and then you can't do that. They also do a Dopey Nation Zoom. They do 26 Dopey Nation Zooms a week and um, you can get in touch with everybody. So the Zoom address, I should always have this ready, is 804-300-586. The password is toodles, all in lowercase letters. I've been like depressed 
been depressed since DopeyCon. And don't worry, I'm fine. I'm not going to use blah, blah, blah. It is okay. I think it's okay to be depressed. It's okay to be in recovery and not feel great. Can't feel great all the time. And and I think I'm in between planning for the next big thing. But, um, you know, it, I, people are like, is it seasonal disaffected disorder? I don't think so. I always love the autumn. Love the leaves changing and all that stuff. I've just, I don't know. I haven't felt great. I don't know. You can't feel great all the time. And I know that I always feel better when I'm doing stuff. And I always feel better if I can actually be of service and I can actually be active. Like when Montana from Austin wrote in and he needed, I sent him Narcan and, and all of a sudden a bunch of dopes in Austin, Texas reached out and we connected them with Montana. And that makes me feel good. But you know, I'm grandiose and I want everything all at once all the time. But the point is you can be down and don't fuck it up. Don't use. Cause it's like, if I used digging myself out of that hole, if I was fortunate enough to live and dig myself out of the hole would be a lot of work, but I can be down and I can do other things. You know, I've gotten back into watching fucking Oz. <laughs> I tried to watch Oz last time I got sick and, um, I was worried that the kids outside of my room could hear the prison rapes happening. So I, I stopped watching Oz, but I've gotten back into watching Oz. And I just want to say, Oz is not the highest quality show. It's a lot of monologues and, and, and low, you know, low budget TV. But it's not as bad. It's not bad either. I think it's pretty good. For some reason, it's comforting to me. So if you haven't seen Oz on HBO, I kind of recommend it. I'm like back, I'm like on season five or season four, and it's still still pretty good. So I have to say, if you want to take a trip down memory lane and go to Oz, it's it's not that bad. And and luckily I never spent time in prison. And so this is basically the closest I've ever had to be. And all your friends from Oz are, are still in prison. Kareem Saeed, Tobias Beecher, Chris Keller, Poet, Augustus Hill. Oh, man, it's such a stupid show. But I, I, I recommend it. I recommend it. And I got this email. I, I got a bunch of fucking emails. But I'm going to read this note because it's dopey. What the fuck? He says, hey, man, I've been listening to your podcast for years. Thank you for all the hope. I've been a bit of a hooligan most of my life going against the stream and having my fun. I've lost friends along the way, and it sucks. I just found out that I lost my mentor, Musa. He created a prison outreach program and actually went back to prison. He went back as a mentor and organized for a change through brotherhood to fight addiction and criminality. Me, I'm still drinking and eating pot. I wish I could be sober, but I don't know, man. It's rough facing life with no filter. My buddy got murdered. My other homie caught 50 years. I work at a funeral home hauling bodies. I'm good at it, and I find a lot of value and joy in it. Sometimes... There is stuff I want to put in a box and forget. Booze helps, and I wish I was zen enough to do it without. Toodles, Michael. Well, thank you for the note, Michael. It's like you think, and I'm not going to be preachy here. You, I mean, I never wanted to live, you know, quote-unquote, unfiltered. But, like, weird filters develop. You think it's going to be one way, but then it's actually another. And if you're drinking and eating pot you know, feels good and your life is not totally fucked, then, you know, don't sweat it. But there are 
filters that can develop in sobriety and you don't feel like a raw nerve after you get a little bit of time. That is my big promise. In time, things get better. That is a, it is a hundred percent true. I can't believe I'm this weird sober preacher now. It's fucking it's very, very odd. We have a very beautiful guest this week. This guy, his name is Keith Gard. He was one of the managers from Aerosmith and Aerosmith's, you know, giant peak time in the eighties. Uh, and, and Keith is a lovely guy who's been through a lot and he is coming up in a second. But before we play Keith, we have a new sponsor. It's a new recovery app. It's totally free. It's called Sober Together. It's very interesting. It is an app that lets you post a daily video or audio check-in to share how you're doing, progressing, struggling, or you could share like a dopey story. You're basically, it's like a mix between TikTok and texting. You, you post a video of yourself like a, a sobriety log or, a, or a, a life log, and you can receive video replies to your check-in from others in recovery all over the world. And you can send video replies back and forth to each other like a comment thread, but instead you're having face-to-face -face video or audio conversation. You kind of need to see it to really understand and even believe it, but it's free in the App Store. So I highly recommend going and downloading it and trying it for yourself. If you feel introverted, if you don't like sharing at a meeting, but you want to be seen and heard, this is a cool thing for you. So you go to Sober Together at the App Store Life-saving conversations are taking place all day and all night on Sober Together. Download it now, 100% for free, in the Apple App Store, and try checking in. You've got a post to be welcomed by the community and make new connections that you can have raw, honest conversations with and who can support you in navigating recovery. I am about to download it myself and check in. You can find me on there soon enough. I would love to see you on there. It is free. It is at Sober Together in the App Store. And now we have Keith Gard. And I met Keith in Park. I met Keith on a Zoom call before Park City. And I just, the Park City Song Summit. And I just knew, like, this guy had something to say. I mean, the first time I, I think I sat with him while I was getting the, uh, the fucking IV nutrients and saline in the green room of the you know when I was a big big shot in Park City and I just listened to Keith talk and it's just so obvious that uh he has some real wisdom and he has been through a lot and I'm so excited to share a little bit of Keith with you guys so here we go Keith Gard I'm on the upper west side of Manhattan with a friend of mine Met him at the Park City Song Summit. He's an entrepreneur. He's a writer. He's a speaker. He's a deep thinker. He's famously the former co-manager to the band Aerosmith. Keith Gard, welcome to the show. Hey, Dave. How you feel? Oh, I feel really good, man. It's it's great to be to be back in New York City. And uh, what were you? You were about to talk about CBGBs and Black Beauties. Do we want to jump in there, or do we want to jump in at the beginning of time? Let's jump in there. Well, sure. Keith Gard is famously a New Yorker and a music person, and we were talking about music, and and Keith's like, I remember this thing at CBGBs with Black Beauties. So how could we not start there? Sure, let's start there. A very close and a very dear friend of mine was the drummer. In the mumps. Okay. 
Right, Lance Loud, lead singer from the Loud family. You know, we lived in the city, and I had a car. So I would help my friend Paul, the drummer, haul his kit to CBs, Penny Feathers, track, you know, tracks to the clubs in New York. And so um, I, I had a kind of a ritual where I would get to CBs, and I, I was, it was a time in my life where I was high a lot, and I was high late like hearing the birds chirping. Yes. Right? And hating hearing them. Just a wonderful little side note. <laughs> what a beautiful thing every sunrise can be. And in that state, in that place, the sunrise was a horror story happening. Hell. Yeah. Because the, the night was over and, and all of a sudden... And I had shit to have to do in the daytime. And the night should go on forever. You'd like the night to go on forever. I, I mean, like, I've never been a good late night person, but when I did drugs and stayed up late, the mornings were just, it's just the Brutal. worst. Yeah, horrible. So Black Beauties. So I, I had a trusted relationship, an experienced and trusted relationship with Speed and loved Black Beauties. So I would go to CB's and I would pop a Black Beauty and go to sleep. Music playing, people everywhere, and I would fall asleep because I was completely exhausted. Done. 20 minutes later, I would wake up like a rocket, and I was so, like, entertained in a way by what was actually happening to me, the way that I, that I woke up, because it wasn't like there was no waking up. It was, I'm asleep, and now I'm like, whoa, I'm awake. <laughs> One day, I, w I was having a conversation with a rock star who, who you may know, and he's telling me about how he used to be exhausted, and he would eat a black beauty. <laughs> he would drop a black beauty and wake up 20 minutes later like a rocket. <laughs> and I'm like, fuck you, man. You must have heard me tell that story. Nobody else did that. And he's looking at me like, my brother. <laughs> right, right. That's so funny. Yeah. I heard a story like that where the person would take acid, mm. go to sleep, and wake up tripping. Wow. That was that was a, a drummer from, uh, I think, this band, No Effects. That was his move. Wow. At the end of the night, like you, he would take a dose and go to bed and then wake up fucking tripping, which is ridiculous. I mean, like, I never did either of those things. Like, when I was done, I was done. But that's crazy. Either way. Was that this Steven Tyler rock star, or you're not going to disclose that name? Well, you can tell by the way that I'm shaking my head. Right. Absolutely <laughs> not. So I love the start of people's stories. And, uh, and, and I got to know you at, uh, in Utah mm. in a magical couple days in Park City at the Park City Song Summit. At the very first, the inaugural Park City Song Summit which was a joy and a gift. Keith had a, he had set up a talk there called what would love do. You know, Keith is, you're very much a very philosophical person, which I appreciate. And I love that idea of what would love do. And I feel like that shaped my experience there because I had that question going on in my head. What would love do? Where was that question born? You know, for me, it was gestating for a lifetime, much of it out of a 
not an intellectual construct or a clear pursuit because I didn't have that clarity, but I did have a broken heart. And when do you think you realized that? Well, I felt the need to have to run or cover from the time I was a little boy. And do and you remember that feeling? Oh, yeah. Descri describe it, because I'm sure a lot of people will relate to it. At one point, I was doing some work with a group of guys in a, a men's group, we, each of us working together with each other in doing some recovery work, drug addicts supporting one another. And a question came up that I had seen over the years doing this work multiple times. And never before this last time did I have the realization that I had. And the, the question for discussion was, what is it that we carry shame about that is not of our own doing? What am I ashamed of that's not of my own doing? And for some reason, that opened a door this time. And it's just not that many years ago to the answer to your question. And it, what I was ashamed of and what I carried shame about, I was ashamed of the family I was born into. I was ashamed of being a, a little kid who, a little boy who was beaten. I was ashamed of the town that I was born in. I was ashamed of being Jewish in a community where there was constant ridicule. What town was that? Not just the town, but it was Levi in Levittown, New York. First suburb. Yeah. I was born here. In, in you were born in Lower East Side. In Lower, Lower East Side of Manhattan. The experience that I had of, of that, that shame, without belaboring you know, the story, I carried, and I carried it so deeply. When I was younger, I was fully aware, and so I made up an alter me, an alternative wife outside of my, the home of my family of origin, where I lived into being the guy who I wanted you to believe I was, who I wanted to believe I was. In, in today's therapeutic and, uh, in some circles, uh, relational life therapy, that's called the adaptive child. It's interesting, though, because there are so many things in that that served you. Like you got Absolutely. to be who you wanted to be. What doesn't serve you in that situation? Shame? What doesn't serve me in that situation? <clears throat> what doesn't serve me is it's the beginning at those earlier, in those early, early years of separating myself, of really building a big ego structure at the expense of my spirit. Explain that. We serve our ego, I believe, I believe. I serve my ego at the expense of my spirit. Ego is about me. Spirit is about us, is connection. There's no separation for me in what the true nature of who we are spiritually, not a religious thing, but actually founded in science. We are all connected in the deepest possible ways. And so, we're all connected biologically, you know, to the earth chemically, to the cosmos, to the universe, atomically. Right. Science. Right. That connection for me reveals itself for people who are willing to 
really to seek and to make that connection in the greatness of the spirit of life. It's amazing how, how I, it's funny, um, I go to this uh, Sopranos episode. There's a Sopranos episode where Tony Soprano had been shot and he's in the hospital, and, mm. and, and in the hospital with him is a quantum physicist, and they're watching a boxing fight. They're watching a boxing match on the TV. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the quantum physicist says, oh, you think there's two fighters, but that's thinking that there's two different winds blowing. You know, they're all, It's all quantum. It's all molecules. And, and that's what you're talking about. But it's interesting how the ego separates from that and how... You kind of need to, right? We we need to be ourselves, and like, but we need to pay homage to that. It's very hard to live both ways at the same time. How we, do you do it? We live the well. This human experience provides us with a sense of separation, a sense of it's me over here, it's you over there. But doesn't and, capitalism force us to do that? Yeah, well, absolutely. And capitalism, you know, I don't want to be the the philosopher over here, or, or you know, the we're going to get to drugs in the, the economic theory. We're going to get to you getting high in a second because I just have my opinion, of course. But it's my subjective reality, right? I I don't believe it's the truth. I'm going with you here. My perception, hundred percent. So yeah, look, more than capitalism, getting down underneath, you know, and and what capitalism, socialism, you know, the, the theoretically, they all work on paper. In reality. Well, you know, we see historically what works, what works, how it works, how well it works in terms of supporting the best interests of the greater good. Our culture is just so hampered by toxic individuality, by a patriarchal, hierarchical culture that is driven by values of command and control, winner-take-all, me versus you. Hopefully, the shift that we're seeing in a lot of places, something that, that I do everything I can to, to bring to the circles I have influence in, are those archetypal feminine values of collaboration, of harmony, of shared responsibility. Partnership. Sure. Community. Right. And and then you can, but it's still within this bigger, harmonious, universal thing where we are all one versus when we need to achieve in in this world. You know what I mean? Like, because you achieved so much on your own, maybe to serve your ego, but also just to serve, to live in in. New York, to live in America, to be successful, to be like an athlete and a business person. Like, how do those two, th- I mean, like, I want to get to you getting high in your addiction and all that stuff, but you were a very hardcore achiever. Does the achievement, individual achievement, go against what you're talking about right no, now? No, it's part, it's truly part of the road, right? It's part of the, the, you know, trite as it may sound, it's part of the journey. It's an essential part of the journey, well, I mean, for me, you know, to get really, to go a little bit... Further? Yeah. So I, I was working with a teacher who asked me to suspend disbelief and just go with what she was presenting. The idea that in spirit, there's no linear time. So 
yesterday and tomorrow are not one happened before the other, and we're all knowing in some sense. I, I don't really know what that, can, that means, because I don't have any memory of having been in that place. But I, I honored her request that I just suspend disbelief sure. and say, what if I chose to enter into this lifetime, this human experience, fully knowing what I was going to experience? Also knowing once I entered in, I wouldn't know that anymore. Once I was born in my human form. All that information would be gone. Right. But the life would unfold. Right. So she said, so if that were true, why this life? Why this Keith Guard life, that family, those parents, that stuff that you carry, that, that shame, not of your own doing? What were you doing to do that? Which, by the way, begs the question, what is recovery about? So, and we'll come back to that. So I said, wow, what a great question. I, I don't know. I, <laughs> wow, what a great question. She said, well, what do you think? And, and, you know, my thought there, my answer is to learn what it is, to understand my own humanity, and in so doing, have a deeper sense of humanity and what the fuck we're doing here in this human experience. And so all of that stuff of ego, all that stuff of being driven to have to be the fastest guy, the smartest guy, the you know, the athlete, the the richest student, guy, the, the most the, the hardcore business person who negotiates shit and gets more money for your client or whatever. Yeah, all those accolades that come along with the awards, the trophies, the bank accounts, the all you know, all those things. And how fascinating that so many of us, myself especially, because I'm talking about yourself representing me here. Yes, yes. yes. Um that I couldn't not have those things and think that I had value. Again, it's trite. It's a trite. No, but that was kind of my first question, which is like, I agree with you, like in terms of we are all one and, and those spiritual ideals are awesome. But at the same time, the conversation we had right before it was, how can I stop working at Katz's? How can I make Dopey better, bigger? You know what I mean? Like, and, and you... I feel like you came to this spiritual place out of material success. Uh, well, along with, let's say, and I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with material success at all. Let's be clear. I, I was having a conversation with, with a young woman who was accusing me of being a hypocrite because I was talking about redistribution of wealth and, and reinforcing some of her socialist ideals. Right. And she looked at me, and I thought she would say, wow, you're so marvelous, and you know. You're so groovy. Yes. No, so she looked at me, and she said, you're such a <laughs> you're fucking like, hypocrite. <laughs> right, right. And I said, well, how can you say that? And she said, well, look at the you know, Mercedes Benzes in the garage. Look at this house where you live in. Look at this. Your fancy Alaskan cruise. So, well, that was quite later. But, but um, <laughs> you know, and, and she was right. But I wasn't ready then. I could acknowledge it. But I couldn't live it. I right. couldn't live into it. And I'm not saying that I'm a renunciate living in the side of a mountain in a diaper. No, certainly not. <laughs> You're, I mean, I, I think also, like, they're highfalutin ideals. And, and, like, they can make our life, while we're here, 
better and they can help the way we treat each other to treat each other better and they are ideals that make they make you happy and in turn you can make other people happy by living in those ideals so that's what makes them good you asked me dave yes where did this idea what would love do come yes. from yes so in pursuit of a deeper understanding and really for me in a deeper sense of wellness i was working with a teacher who uh, was marvelous a psychologist working a, a group together of some real movers and shakers, you know, change makers, a, a very impressive room full of people, except for me. <laughs> I mean, I was like, wow. <laughs> and, this, and the facilitator, this woman, interrupts herself and says to the group, let me ask you a question. If the very next thing you say and, the, or, the, and or the very next thing that you would do in any circumstance, and especially in one where it's conflicted. If the very next thing you would say or the very next action you would take was to come from a place of love, would you make that choice? Right. And I, I'm hearing her and I'm thinking, what a stupid fucking question that is. Of course you will, of course. And in like the nanoseconds of my brain answering, another voice chimed in and said, but you don't. Right. You don't. You know, you you act defensively when somebody, when you feel attacked or accused or, you know, shame comes up. You pull up a shield to protect. You pull out a weapon to attack. All, you know, so often you live your, your business in ways that are filled with receiving messages. You receive the world in ways that feel like there's somebody who might hurt you. So my awakening, if you will, in that moment was, I don't. But boy, what could change? That would be really interesting. I'm going to try this on for a little while and see how it goes. Right. We talked a bit about trauma and you talked a bit about shame when we started talking. And I know your father recently died. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm sorry about your dad. And I want yeah, to yeah. But growing up in Levittown, like, what was the shame? What was the pain? Like, what forced you to split off of the path you were on to seek this other personality, this other life? Well, I look, I, I mean, I grew up in a war zone. Explain it, though, because I think people benefit from that kind of stuff. My, my mother was, uh, an, was undiagnosed, bipolar, prescription drug, invested and addicted. She wouldn't go to sleep. She would fall out wherever she happened to be. And, you know, there was no routine there. She what did they have her on? She was dangerous. Tranquilizers of various colors, shapes, and sizes. And she was deeply, deeply disturbed. And she beat her children. You being one of them. Me being one. And so your experience as a kid. And she didn't beat her children like, oh, you were bad, let me beat you. It would could be, you know... Oh, you know, I love you, I love you. And something would trigger her. And all of a sudden, I'm running away from this woman who's fiercely like, chasing me, angry with whatever was close by as a weapon, which was coming down one way or the other. That was rough. What was probably even harder for me, I have an older sister who was the first child who had it worse than I did. And 
I would witness some of what were, um, for me, I mean, just just really horrible things that my mother would do to her, like waking her up at two or three in the morning, but be- beating her while she was asleep, and that would wake her, pulling the drawers out of her dresser and dumping them on the floor at you know, three and four in the morning, screaming, you know, don't tell me you have nothing to do. You're, you know, just, and, you know, as a little kid, you know, first grade, I, I would leave my house crying almost every day, but by the time I got into the schoolyard to line up to go into the the building, I'd beaten somebody up. You passed along the beating. You passed along the pain. Yeah. As a little kid. Yeah. Did you fight through your teenage years? So I, I found organized athletics. To focus the rage. To be. I was really very clear as I would be stepping on you in, in a soccer player or, or basketballer, but really ultimately becoming like the, the soccer player. I knew I had 90 minutes and a set of boundaries within which I could kick your ass and take out that anger and rage that I carried. And you have achievement and you can and you could focus energy and all of a sudden you're transported. And I would be rewarded for it. Right. Big time. And so as a kid, I'll be 70 years old in, in February. So when I was playing all those years ago, the coaches, soccer in America was being coached by and large by football dads. So the aggressive, right, you know, when I would tackle, sliding tackle or take somebody out or, you know, was rewarded, it was praised. My my four-year-old daughter plays soccer and I I grew up pretty not athletic, you know, and I I have a lot of shame (laughs) around that. But I go to my daughter's games and, uh, and she... She thinks she's great, and that she's a wonderful person. She's not that gifted at soccer, but I'm on the side of the field, and I just scream, attack, you know, the four, to the four-year-old girl. And she doesn't attack, but I'm like, attack, you know, and I want to be the football dad guy. But um, you, you had this amazing achievement in athletics, and you went on to having this incredible achievement with music, and you became this prodigious drug addict. Which was the first that you sought shelter in in your life? What was the first that gave you that identity? Music, drugs, <clears throat> or, or athletics? Oh, there was no question that there were, it was sports. And, and, you know, where where my, you know, growing up, you know, New York and the suburbs, you know, the city and the suburbs, you couldn't talk about heart and spirit. It wasn't there. And I was a sensitive, I was, I, I was underlying, I was really a sensitive kid. The face I showed up with was, and I grew up in a really tough neighborhood with the sons of Sandlot athletes, all working class, blue collar. Cops and firemen, so, contractors. And, you know, bank tellers, you know, right. refrigerator repair right. guys, um, some of whom I, I revered. And so you had to be fast. Tough. The faster you were, the higher regard you were held in. The tougher you were, same. So I grew up in a way in in like athletic training ground with older guys. My next door neighbor was the old Nassau County shot put champion. Right. You know, a monster of a guy who I, I you know, idolized. He was three years older than I was. Across the street, another guy who was like an all state, all you know, like football player. I loved him. And these guys would kick your ass. 
when's the first time you found music? Because it was that time in, in America, right? We're talking about rock and roll, right? This is, this is an exciting moment in the world. I told you that I would go to school often as a little, little kid crying. A lot of the time it was because I had this bout with my mother because I would wake her up to see if I could get like matching socks or clean clothes. Or One day she said to me, I was eight years old, she said, let me show you how to work the washing machine and dryer so you'll never have this problem again. And what I discovered in the process of taking my clothes out of the dryer, and I would wait for my mother to fall out, so sometimes it would be two, three in the morning, and I had a transistor radio, and I could pick up Motown from Detroit, and early days of Motown, right? And I'm like now nine years old, 10 years old. Best music. And I would take the warm clothes out of the dryer and hold them to my belly, to my chest, listening to radio from Motown from Detroit, right? And tears, and I would just, that warmth was just, and I felt like music, if it wasn't saving my life, it was, it was loving me. I felt like this music was loving me. And that's very powerful, just like the, the smell of, of, of clean laundry and the warmth of you know, fresh from the dryer you know, clothes. a warm towel, a bathrobe, you know. And, and so, and my grandmother, who I adored, was an angel, was the angel. Your mom's mom or my your dad's mom, mom? My mom's mom. And, and she, she knew who your mother was. Oh, yeah. And she would come out to, uh, every weekend when we were on Long Island, she would come out. And I would go in to the, back to the Lower East Side of Manhattan to be with her. But uh, she would come out and make sure we were okay and kind of, you know, clean the house and Well, she knew that her daughter and, was sick, probably. Oh, yeah. And she was like, I got to go out there and make sure that this kid she is still alive. Us. Yeah. And so she would give us a bath, and she'd always make sure that there was a towel from the dryer, so there was a, a warm, warm towel nice to wrap Jewish us up. Nice Jewish grandmother. A wonderful Jewish grandmother who... And, and that feeling and that sensation and her love... You know, and it was a great thing. So music for me, and by the way, fast forward 40 years later, I'm turned on to stand to the, the documentary Standing in the Shadows of Motown. Sure. <laughs> and I was, I, he, I, I'm watching this and I'm thinking, that's why. There it is. That incredible sound, the Funk Brothers, the incredible writing, the, the arrangement. The, the whole thing. The whole thing. You're like, hold on. The movie on, you pause the movie, you run to the laundry room, throw a towel on the dryer, <laughs> little fabric saw. I wish that, I did. Right? That's great. <laughs> next time. Maybe I will. Ne- next yeah. time for the full sensory yeah. overload. And uh, when when does, because uh, these are all like, it's funny, like all of these things are like kind of good escapes, like achievement in, in athletics. Is an, I, I, like I wish I had gone those routes and I kind of sometimes I'm like, why didn't I do that? Like, it was, I played with an intensity. So there were guys who you would say, wow, this kid is the most skilled. He's an amazing player. I didn't get, wow, you're so skilled. You're an amazing player. It was heart and grit and a ferocious need to be able to do things that prevailed over you. Right, to be, and to be recognized. So if the ball was in the air, that was mine. Right. You need you needed it, and it was, it was, it was I needed it. You needed it, and you got it because you needed it, and that it drove you, which is pretty incredible. I think it's a very special thing. I needed it, and I also needed to be recognized for. You know, I went on. I was president of my class year after year. All of the kinds of things that 
added up to a cloak of achievement that I could present to the world around me to say, here's my value. Love me because I'm so important. I'm so achieved and accomplished, right? And meanwhile, I was burying and literally forgetting about the guy who I was ashamed of. When I was younger, I knew I was doing this make-believe thing. That, that disappeared, and I was just living this life of having to be the guy. Well, because also it, it brought you acceptance. It brought you uh, respect. It brought you money eventually, probably. Women, friends, all, all those all, things. All those things. Great rewards yes. um, that I needed to have. But it doesn't necessarily feed the spiritual side of what you were talking about when we started talking. Well, yeah. not at all, because those great rewards also came with... I hurt people. I hurt... Sports, good. And again, I was, I was rewarded for it on the soccer field. I was rewarded for being... Cold-blooded. For being a killer. Right. And I wasn't just a killer. You know, I, I did other things that were important, like scoring goals, and then as I got older, becoming more of a defensive player and keeping people from scoring goals. Um, and being the being a captain of the team and being because I needed to be, right? I needed to be the leader. I I didn't know what it meant to be number two for me was failure. Yeah, that's hard. That's hard. When when did uh, you first take a mood or mind altering substance? Well, the first profound experience was actually at Woodstock in 1969. Tell me, how did you wind up at Woodstock in 1969? Um, my best friend. Well, to this day, I just revere. His name is Paul Rutner. My friend Paul's older brother, Richie, said, I'll take you guys to Woodstock. My parents were fine because Richie was a responsible How old were guy. you? Uh, 15, 16. Nice. And you hadn't smoked weed yet? I smoked hash. Before Woodstock? Before Woodstock. A friend of mine stole from his brother. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, were, we had discovered that. And it was black, and it was moist, and it had these white lines I learned, you know, it was opiated, black opiated hash. Wow. Amazing. Did it have the stamp? No. Well, I don't know, because he just stole a piece. Didn't you love the old hash with the stamp? I love the stamps, yeah. The stamp is great. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll we'll get to that. I I became a collector, actually. Really? Of of hash from around the world, but that's... I want to hear about that. So tell me about Woodstock first. So we went, and... I Because um, I asked you when the first time you got high was, and you said Woodstock, but it turns out you had a history with hash before Woodstock. So well, what a, happened at not Woodstock? Not a history that, so much as an experience. experience. Okay, so what happened at Woodstock that was transformed? So we literally, true story, we're walking along the road. <laughs> and this guy, hippie-looking guy, comes walking over, and he's got a, uh, um, a, a street vendor's change belt yeah. on cloth with different pockets and he pulls out a pill and a thing and he says to us want something good for your head and Paul and I look at each other and go okay he said split this I said what is it he said it's organic mescaline so we said we're at Woodstock (laughs) so we took it and started to trip and how was it at Woodstock how was it how was the organic mescaline trip when you get to Woodstock Amazing. I mean, it was... Although, we, the two of us were standing there, and all of a sudden, we, we didn't know where we were, but we were at Woodstock. And my friend Paul is crying. And I said, why are you crying? And, he, and we're getting off, right? And he, I said, why are you crying? And he said, because we're lost. Wow. And I said, we're lost. And I started to cry. <laughs> and we're standing there crying, and this 
these, these young women are walking like a snake through the crowd, holding each other's hands one after the other after the other. And they stopped and they said, why are you crying? And we said, we're lost. And they said, well, come with us. So we said, okay. <laughs> and we grabbed on and we're wending our way through people who are setting up blankets and doing and finding their place on the And you're 15. So 15 or 16. Right. 16, I think. And so um, all of a sudden, there's Paul's brother with the blanket. And so we're like, they we weren't lost anymore. Us to the, we weren't lost anymore, yeah. And the rest of it was, you know, it was hilarious for me. Um, the conditions were not great, as, you know, history knows. And, you know, lots of rain. Did you see Jimi Hendrix? Could you see the stage? See everybody, yeah. We were close. That's incredible. You, how many times did you see Jimi Hendrix in your life? Was that the only time? I saw Hendrix when I was younger, actually, at the Cafe Wa in New York. Were, you weren't at the famed Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison jam at the Cafe Wa. Did you ever hear that tape? Yes, no. The fuck, no. the fuck him in the ass tape? No. Um, that's incredible. What, just on a side note, how was seeing uh, Jimi Hendrix? Oh, okay, I didn't, the truth, I didn't believe that one guy is making all that music, all that sound out of that instrument. As somebody who's been in the rock and roll business for so long, and I, I don't know why I'm asking this question. I just feel like it. Like, people often will cite Jimi Hendrix as the greatest guitar player in history. You know, and, and, and I love Jimi Hendrix, and I'm very interested in him as a thinker or a songwriter, a creator. But sometimes I wonder, why was he received? Why was he rated as the greatest guitar player of all time? Why do you think he was? Well... There's always the reality of the skill with which somebody can make an instrument make sound. And the relationship that he had with his instrument was, th there was no separation. Right. No separation. That whatever it was that was going on inside of him, he was expressing with the purity and the clarity, the veracity in a way Total yeah. connectivity, the, right, of his to, soul total, to that instrument. Total. Right. And, you know, he, he was doing something that was also innovative, but with the power to make an impression that was absolutely undeniable. It was so strong that if you were there to, to witness it, you couldn't not become part of it. So as somebody who's seen probably, you've probably seen just about every great guitar player, right? Seen a lot of them. Would you rate him as, as number one, or would you rate them all as different? So, yeah, you know, it's like, who's the best doctor in the world? I don't know. The one that makes you better. Right, 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 right. right. So um, but people will ask me, what are your 10 favorite albums all time? I have 200 favorite favorite top 10 albums so it's a way it's a waste of time to rate Jimi hendrix at all well i mean you know greatness and as an artist and and as a creative experiencing Jimi hendrix was like stepping into a portal to the divine right 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 and i i i'm just obsessed with woodstock like i i spent probably two years of my life watching the woodstock documentary every mm. day because mm. i have problems and i didn't really like where i was at the time <laughs> when you were at the concert were you like really in the concert or was it more just the experience? Like, could you, was there anything at that show? I, I was in and out of the concert. What was your favorite act? I was in, I was for the most part 
I was high. Because when, so I'm, I'm tripping, and the announcement from the stage, you know, the, 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 the bad acid going around. The brown acid, yeah. Right? Don't yes. take the brown acid. Yes. Right? So there was a guy laying next to me who was catatonic when we got there. And catatonic for, for what I remember as hours. When they made that announcement, he, he sits up <laughs> and he looks over and he turns his head and looks right at me. And he says, if everybody smoked hash, that would not be a problem. And he goes back down, just lays back, back down. That's and I'm funny. like, whoa. And then he pops up again and he says, want some? And I said, yeah, yeah I guess, yeah, yeah. And he breaks off a piece of this beautiful brown hash. Like, a, um, I think it was, was... It's probably Nepalese Temple Ball hash. I think so, actually. <laughs> it was brown, yeah, as I recall. <laughs> uh, or Lebanese. But um, So I, I looked at him, and I'm, he could see in my face that I'm, I didn't ask that I recall I was tripping, but, like, what do I do? How do I smoke it? Because I didn't have any paraphernalia. And he says, eat it. And I'm like, done. <laughs> And he gave me a big piece, so I gave some to my friends. I eat it. So now I'm tripping, and I have the added value of, you know, this, whatever this hash is doing for me. And so I would be in and out of the music because there's things that were going on around me. There were these girls next to me who were so sweet and offering us sandwiches and, you know, but I felt it was like torture. Hot dog. Want a hot dog? And I couldn't really process, like, the do I want a hot dog to yes or no, or it was just, I, what you're, an interference this is. I don't, I don't know what to do with that well, question. Well, you're a kid tripping. You can't I eat. don't know what to do with that question. Yeah. And I don't want to offend you, but, it's like, you know, it's like a commercial when breaking into something you love watching and it breaks. And so finally said okay and I took the hot dog and then I threw and I threw it away. <laughs> and my my friends were I would lay back to to like put my head down and just look at the sky and listen to the music and my head went into the quarter of a hollowed out watermelon rind. And you slept in the watermelon rind? No, I I, I tossed it. Like I t- like went, wow, that's weird. And I threw it away. It was like a little helmet, right? And I just got rid of it. And I sat up for a while and I laid back. And there it was again. And then another one, and this happened like four times. And I thought to myself, I swear this is true. I thought to myself, everybody here must be eating watermelon. <laughs> <laughs> and then I see my friends are laughing their asses off because they just kept getting it and putting it back. Right. So and you're totally dosed out, crazed. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's funny. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, that, those are the innocent moments of... Uh... And sweet. And so I would laugh at my, I was very happy to laugh at my own, you know, silliness, my own... Like being the jerk. <laughs> and as a New Yorker, you're a New Yorker, you're a teenager. How much did Woodstock impact your life? Like when you came home, were you like, fuck it, I'm a hippie, I'm doing drugs? No. I, but they were subtle and not so. They were, they were on the surface of it because of the experience. It was a great story. Um, I got up in the middle of the night out of the tent, being surrounded by water, to go and take a leak. And I stepped in what turned out to, I found out the next morning, was my friend Paul had taken a dump. <laughs> and, and on my way over to the open flowing kind of river of sewage, 
so I could take a leak. I stepped in his shit, you know. Great, great Woodstock stuff, right? Yes. So I thought it was funny when he told me, you know. And it is funny. It was funny. <laughs> you survived. Gross, but funny, right? So there were things that I saw that influenced me profoundly. I had never seen people naked and complete writhing, freaking out. There were people who were convulsing. There were so, and there were people with little kids, everybody naked in a pond, kind of, you know, having this beautiful, loving experience. It, it was amazing. I had never had the experience of seeing police and hippies coexisting, coexisting, getting along. I felt a kind of a warmth, a sense of connection, and a a a, a, a real. I felt like. Wow, you know, there's the world got bigger. So what happens to you when and you it got better for that, for that experience for that two two days three days of peace, yeah. love, and music? Yeah, definitely, and it impacted the world in so many ways. You know, it's very easy if you want to track music and drugs in American culture to say that the hippies begat the '70s, which was this. You know the beginning of drug addiction in America. Yeah, yeah. like that's that's a it, it's it's an equation that we can say. So after the festival, did you become? Were you using? Were you smoking hash every day? Or were you tripping all the time? Was was it a lifestyle thing? No, no. You know, it was a, a great experience, but it was certainly the beginning for me of a uh, a new awareness and a search for availability of not just the escape into the value of, of altering consciousness. Of course, there was the influence of, the social influence of, it's cool to get high. And if I needed anything, my ego needed to be cool. I needed to be seen as, you know. You knew where it was at. I knew where it was at. I represented where it was at. How does drug addiction even rear its head? Like, because you had everything in a managed place. You were achieving in all these different areas like when does it go from enjoying the world and transcending each situation to finding yourself addicted or compulsively using or where does the compulsion even come from okay so i was a, an athlete compulsively right right i had to win with a compulsive absolutely obsessive conviction and i lived that way throughout in all of the facets of my existence then, it was the compulsion and that addictive commitment to really in the form of obsession was ever present. And it worked really well for me in this particular regard as we're describing throughout that high school and even into college where the world was still very small even though it was getting bigger and being able to still have name in paper as, you know, this achievement or that, or, you know, being seen on the street like, oh, you know, it's da-da-da, Kiko Gard, who my nickname was Kiko, and that's everybody knew me as. And then college ends. I, I don't have training to go to. I don't have people on sidelines, you know, screaming out, get number 17. That structure disappears. Gone. Who I was, because I was, to me, in the mirror, valuable only on the basis of what I had achieved, I didn't know who I was looking at, except that I knew 
I have no fucking idea who I am or what to do or where to go. I thought, you know, in, in my sophomore, junior years of school that I'd be a lawyer. I changed my mind and didn't take the LSATs. I was lost. And shortly thereafter, well, I, I, I actually, I got married before my junior year of college. Wow. Why? In the summer. Fear. In college you got married? Yep. Interesting. I, well, you, my model was O.J. Simpson. He wasn't the O.J., of course, of infamy. He wasn't the murderous O.J. then. Correct. Yes. He was an All-American athlete. He had, a, he, he had gotten married, you know, da-da-da. And, and there was a lot about my life that was mirroring, you know, these levels of success. And my grandiosity was profound. Right. And I thought, you know, I'll be the coolest guy because I'll have a... A wife. A pretty blonde wife who get finished with my undergraduate work, go to law school, she'll support me through, and then I'll be a really successful courtroom lawyer. And we'll have a bunch of kids, and they'll be really good looking, because she was, and I thought I was too, and, you know, and I had an athlete's body, and, you know, and it was just going to be glorious. None of that happened. So what happened? I, I ended up working in social services, became the assistant director of a big agency on Long Island, ended my marriage, and lost my job on the same day. How long did the marriage last? Three years. Were you using it all during it? Smoking pot. Daily basis? Did mm. it, were you defined as a stoner in your mind? No. Okay. No. And I was still playing ball outside of school league, some semi-pro stuff. Not a lot to talk about there. So when my marriage... And my job ended. I knew the marriage was going to end that day. I didn't know the job was going to end that day. I then decided I was going to take the next six months of my life and just figure out life. And I was living on the Lower East Side, and I was tending bar in a private club called the Kiwi Three. Okay. Between First on Ninth Street, between Avenue A and First, and I had the grave the graveyard shift. And at the end of six months. I had $46 in the bank. I was drugging and drinking, and my ego was good because I was getting laid a lot. Had know? you started doing coke at that point? No. And so I decided I got a tattoo, actually, to commemorate those days. I called them the days of take it ease. I was taking it ease, and there's a whole story about take it ease that we don't have time for, but it's tattooed on my ass. Really? The word take it ease. Yeah, I'll show it to you. I can't wait. Was that uh, the Black Beauty fucking CBGB's days at that point? Yeah. Okay. And you're going to see punk rock And CBGB's was easy. It was even earlier, too. So, um, but and, and extended. Who are so you seeing? Everybody from television to Blondie. To Ramones, Dead Boys, Ramones, all Big Time, Wayne County, The Dictators, you know, long list, man. Crazy scene. And the drugs in that scene are going bananas. Bananas. So I, and I wasn't really to, in my mind, you know. So at the end of those six months, so I started my own business. And it was in that business that I was introduced to cocaine. What was the business? It was called Art Initiatives. And it was founded on the belief that the arts could support the arts. And I was helping people who were successful in the arts music. Where did the idea come from? I long believed, in, and especially in high school, I don't want to fool you here into believing that I was a deep thinker. 
but I was a little bit. And I thought it was abominable that in the United States of America, there's such a lack of respect for and an understanding, a cultural understanding of the importance of the arts and the fact that the arts are the soul of a culture. And I knew that there was a very different attitude about arts and creativity in Europe, in European countries, in Canada. And I was, and I hated that in the United States, we missed that. I remember I, I went to school, I went to art school actually, and I remember I would hear all about uh, how in Holland, all the painters would be subsidized to paint. Yeah. And there are these warehouses full of their paintings that and the government basically paid for. And studios that, that were underwritten and absolutely homes. They were and we didn't do that. We they did were the considered opposite. professionals. Right. So I said, I'm going to make a change. Mr. Big Ego, I'm going to... Save the artists. Save the artists. And make money. With artists. Right. The arts will, can support... The, the arts could and should support the arts. How does that work? So I was creating businesses, opportunities to work with the artists who would put money into funding, publishing limited edition runs by artists who had some pricing history. So there was already some built-in value. I got a business manager who was a collector who represented the biggest artists, athletes, personalities in the world. So you got plugged right into the, the fast lane. Crazy, Boom. like late seventies. You're talking about like like drinking fucking from a fire hose. Like Andy Warhol. No, it took a little bit to build. Lichtenstein and all. It these. took it took a little time to build. To Where that. does it start? Someone that was connected to my family, a friend, was in a relationship with a guy who had at the time something called the Rainbow Arts Foundation, and. Bill, I don't remember his last name, had put together a deal with Willem de Kooning to fund his foundation with the sale of a limited edition de Kooning series of prints. That And de Kooning wasn't a printmaker. And Did you meet him? Yeah. Was he cool? So well, he was drunk. De Kooning was a drunk? He was when I met, yeah. I had a teacher at my school who was like a very important you know, abstract expressionist historian. This guy, uh, Irving Sandler, he wrote the book about abstract expressionism. And supposedly he found the, the famous de Kooning in the garbage and then he brought it to the show and he's like, but what about this? You know? Yeah, yeah. So that started. So now I have, I figured out a way to be able to acquire the right to sell some of those. And I didn't ever want to be an art dealer. I wanted to build patronage and support, and, and built that over the course of a relatively short amount of time into a kind of success that I had offices on Madison Avenue. It's interesting, though, because those ideas were basically the ideas of collaboration and, and, and like what you were talking about at the beginning of our talk, like to create these partnerships is born from the same desire to, to have connectedness and collaboration. I, I, I had a built-in sense of clarity Largely owing to being a, um, an experienced, organized, athletics participant and, and leader. Understanding how teams should operate. Like and can, right. The real beauty and magic, majesty of a give-and-go well-executed. Right. Well, the funny part to me is that while all of this is happening, it just so happens that the art world, in conjunction with the music world and entertainment world, is going into cocaine addiction. 
and at the same well, time. So here I am in New York, right? I'm having success. I, I'm now I'm dealing with negotiating with the Warhol people down at the factory. Were you friendly with him? With no, no Andy. No, no. I met Andy the same way a million people met Andy. You know, he'd be in the same room with lots of other people. Um, I did not know Andy Warhol, but I knew Fred Hughes, and um, was going to publish a limited edition of Muhammad Ali fists. Okay. In different color states. The deal never happened because everybody, all of the participating parties were a bit too greedy. Right. And I couldn't see a, a profitable outcome. <laughs> meaning Mr. Warhol, meaning, meaning Muhammad War, Ali. people, uh, right. these people. Right. But I was dealing then at that level. So when does cocaine show up? So in my offices, somebody, one of my funders, one of my backers, who was a business partner, he, he, he and his partner were my financial backers, and they introduced me to a guy who came into my office. They were giving me a gift, and it was a Wednesday. And he stood behind me, and he took out this little spoon and gave me a one and a one and went away. And did that light a fire in your brain? I found God. Really? It worked oh. perfectly with your brain. Like, it's funny how, how brain chemistry works, brain chemistry in relation to substances. And when you had a spoonful of Coke going up your nostrils, it, it just was like the thing. The thing. So, of course, I thought I found God. Later, of course, to know that I found the devil. Right. And the devil found me. Sure. And so when's the next time you did it? But before, I, before I even asked that, right, before, what was your relationship with speed like before that? Oh, I was done with Speed by then. Were you ever in love with Speed? Loved. And did it ever get bad? No. Why not? It was because I never got into trouble. What would trouble... I mean, you weren't the kind of person that's Trouble would be arrested. Trouble would be... But even just living on Speed would result in trouble. Like, yeah. how, how long were you running on Speed? So, but I see... But I didn't do it every day. That's what a, I'm saying. I was an athlete. Right. Right? So it was really... It was a party. When we were doing the party, but we would do the party, you know, we'd start in an afternoon, find somebody's car, some parent's car, and and drive around all night long singing every song that was on, you know, our favorite albums on the radio and doing some crazy things that were just like stupid things, you know. And um, But for the most part, just really connecting and believing we were connecting. In the meantime... I was, and didn't, I didn't know it, I was running. But I am one of those people, you hear in recovery meetings, people say, my worst day using, sober, right, right, right. Worst day sober is, is better, better than, than my... my best day when I was using, not for me. Yeah, not for me either. I would hear that and I'd go, you poor fuck. Man. Right, right. Too bad for you. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. So when you talk about speed not having those kinds of consequences, what was the difference with Coke? So the next time, that was a Wednesday. The next time I did that one in one was on a Friday. Within a month, I was doing a gram every other day to quickly, every day to now having, you know, an ounce in the drawer at all times until it was gone and then the chase to get more. I had money. I had a lot of money for a kid, right? A young and art dealer on Madison with, Avenue. Not an art dealer, but I entrepreneur, right? We did have someone who would come in every day with an attache case full of blow at noon. 
thinking she would turn everybody on and she and her sugar daddy would establish a business. But we had the problem of free blow, famous people, Madison Avenue suite of offices. Just money on top of money, Coke on top just of crazy. Coke. Just crazy, people giving away drugs. Right. right. And so my conference room table had, it was, was a big glass table. We never got around to getting chairs. I mean, it was pretty insane. But I was very much in love with two things about cocaine primarily. One, I loved the high. Two, I loved being the guy you had to come to to get high. I loved the power. Did you sell it? Yeah. How much were you selling? Not much. And the truth of the matter is, I was my own worst enemy because I was snorting more than I could sell. And then stepping on it and having shit. And, you know, it's, it, a lot of people have the same story. It doesn't make it less severe. I was in decline in a big way. Losing my business, using the artwork that I had. I snorted it all. Or I stupidly, I lost it, gave it away. I mean, just one stupid decision, drug-induced stupid decision after another. Drug-confused, ego-driven into degradation. What was the lifestyle? Because we've all seen, you know, Studio 54 movies and, and documentaries around late 70s, early yeah. 80s, debauchery, <clears throat> intensity, money, and, and fashion, and coke, and, and what was it like to live in it? So people ask me about what was that like, right? And I'll tell a story, and they'll immediate people believe that the debauchery, the orgies, the, that was with living with, you know, the band that had, you know, two lead guys called the Toxic Twins. Wow, you worked with Aerosmith? That must have been some party. I didn't get high with anybody in Aerosmith. I didn't know them in this phase of my life. So my orgy experiences were, you know, the new that were the guy in that business in that time in New York City, where. Well, I'd imagine there were a lot of orgies in the art world, in the video world, film world, Coke world. You know, that's yeah, a confluence. in New York City, and there were... Right. And, and not just New York City. I'm sure it was in a lot of cities. Yeah, yeah. You know, and we would go for days, 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 days on, on end. No sleep. You know, not being able to put any drugs into our bodies because our noses were so stuffed. We couldn't swallow anything. Our stomachs would puke it up. As, as someone who was born in 1974... So for me, you know, the late 70s was Sesame Street. And you know what I mean? Like, how does it look like to be a young man, an entrepreneur who gets in an orgy, who, who gets in a situation like that? Tell us what happens. How, what's the building blocks for debauchery? And what does it actually look like? How do you get into that? I mean, the world was different. So right? you have a lot of people in a place getting high. <laughs> yes. Right? And somebody has a sexual energy that they're willing to actually, you know, share with someone else willing to share. And that makes it okay. And then someone else, and a hand reaches over and says, come on over here. And then, meanwhile, everybody's not just fucked up, but just this flow of more and more and so it's a kind of an opulence it's a it's it's bacchanalia in a big big way i think it happened again in the ecstasy world but i missed out on all that stuff which is uh very depressing to me <laughs> in my old age well dave you can't have everything you can't have it all right so when does 
because like you're talking about a time where opportunity meets degradation. Right. So like, what does that look like when they come together? Like, and when do you know you're like fucked? It's an explosion. And I didn't know I was fucked even when I had run out of money. I couldn't afford, I had moved from Madison Avenue to Fifth Avenue and 75th and 70, between 72nd and 73rd. Gorgeous duplex space that I'm paying for and not making any money. Getting high all day long, every day. How do you survive that? You don't. How did you get out of the financial problem? I didn't. Let's talk about the decline. So the decline was really ugly. I mean, things where I finally got to a place where I had made a few million dollars as a young guy and pocketed very little of it. and Lived fat. And, and, and made stupid business decisions. It took me about a year and a half to be in debt. During that time of that decline, you know, I mean, my denial was so substantial that I didn't believe it was about the drugs. Right. What did you think it was? The lifestyle? I, I, I just, I didn't stop and think about what it was. I just kept thinking I need to Keep figure going. out how to turn it around. Right. How do I maintain this How do I thing? get money out of an ATM that tells me there's no money left? Right. So how do I go and figure it out? And so I sold my art. What was the coolest thing you had? I had, you know, the Andy Warhol Mick Jaggers? Yeah. I had... A hundred of those. Shut the fuck I had a hundred of those prints. I had ten sets of ten. The full suite of ten. I had ten sets of them. Gone. How much did you sell them for? Sometimes nothing. Right. Trading them for drugs. Right. Exchanging them to continue to get high. Right. Paying off debts. Right. Right. I mean, we sold some of them. I had a Picasso. Wow. Gone. Right. Incredible. Incredible. But, I mean, let's get real here. Yeah. There were times where I spent... That those desperate moments, no more drugs, couldn't find anybody to, to cop from, digging around in shag rugs and pulling up what could be a rock, could be kitty litter. And I would crush it up and snort it. I'm be- I, I snorted a bunch of kitty litter. You know, we all did. And pulled out you know, those cigarette butts from, they were already in the garbage, already had coffee stains on them, sometimes wet. How do you dry it off over the stove, right? And just get that last hit out of it. Sure. You know, sometimes, I mean, I'd even gotten gone to the levels of deprivation where I poured sterno into a rag and tried to, you know, squeeze out something that could get me straight. So when does recovery show its head or is it how long does the decline last? How did you wind up managing, co-managing Aerosmith on the heels of that? In my, because I finally got to a point. So when I was in my offices in Madison Avenue in a shared space with guys who were in the music industry, there was a kid from Boston who was, came to New York to make his fame and fortune, working for someone who was a publisher, represented some artists, and he hated New York, moved back to Boston, ended up managing Joe Perry, who had left Aerosmith. That's Tim Collins. And that was Tim Collins, who, by the way, saved my life. How? Intervening on me. What did he say? How was the intervention? Well, I'll get to that real quickly. So Tim goes back to Boston. He and I were friends. We became close when he was in New York as office, guys sharing an office. How did you meet him? He was in the same office space that I was working for someone else. Right. Who was there. And he and I, we were both dedicated to getting high a lot and also making money. And we became friends. Good friends. So when he moved back to Boston, he was intrigued with how I could be so fucked up and I was making a lot of money. 
and he, he couldn't get over it. And he was very curious, really interested. And he didn't see my degradation because he moved back. He called me up and he said, I thought managing Joe and getting the band back together would be really great for me and I'd have one-fifth of a revitalized Aerosmith income and Aerosmith success, but I'm managing the whole band because that was what Stephen and Joe, Joe said, I'll come back. But Tim has to take over. But we need to be managed by my guy. And Stephen, as I recall, as the story is told, reluctantly agreed. And that's when they were getting sober too, right? For the first and time. And then Tim... Forced them into treatment. Had an opportunity that was presented to him by this amazing executive in the music industry named John Kalodner. Yes. And John believed in what Steven Tyler and Joe Perry could be, again, as a writing team, and gave Tim the opportunity, get them together, get them clean and sober, and we'll have a record deal, and you can rebuild their career. And Tim, against unimaginable odds, got these guys one at a time into treatment, into clarity enough to be able to wake up to and live into wanting to have their career back. Meanwhile, where were you in your recovery? So I wasn't in my recovery. You're using. I'm using heavily. And he's like, I want you to be my partner. And he called me and he said, you got to help me. And I were said, you were you into Aerosmith? No. Did you know them? In, not with any respect. I thought they were a cheap version of the Rolling Stones, you know, and I loved the Stones. And, but they just didn't mean anything to me. I didn't know about them. I knew a song or two. Right. And Tim and I'm in New York, and Tim said, because you're the only guy I know who artists love who can be completely fucked up and still make money. <laughs> and I said, that is not what I want on my resume. So I ended up... Uh, completely unrelated to Aerosmith or my friend Tim, moving to Boston to escape my habit here in New York. My my wife, I was married, my wife at the time, said, I'm getting out of here. You can come or don't come, but this is going to kill us. So, of course, we, we moved to Boston. My drug problem Followed met, you. met me when I got, yeah. Yes. It came with me. Yes, usually does. And, you know, new opportunities met me when I got there, drug opportunities. And I continued, and I, I got involved with, I finally said yes to Tim, got involved as the marketing director in 1987. Shortly thereafter, it was effective. Shortly thereafter, became the co-manager, vice president of the company, co-manager. And in, from 1987 to 1995, Aerosmith had a spectacular Ridiculous. Return to success. The most played band on MTV. The biggest tours in the world. The most success during that period of time. The most successful band in the world. Absolutely. And how hard was it to get sober? So I started to work with them in July of 19... Officially in July of 1987. On January 4th, 1989, my wife in her ninth month of pregnancy after a series of miscarriages... Two and a half weeks after my mother died, someone told Tim that I was getting high. And on January 4th, he and a couple of guys from the band intervened on me. 
So you were using for two years as the co-manager? Yes, I was. Did you use with them at all? Absolutely not. Because they were sober. And I was protecting that sobriety. And their sobriety was their ticket to their mega success. Big time. So what I was doing was so fucking stupid. And dangerous. And dangerous. Yeah. And put so many people at risk. Meanwhile, though, I'm helping them to make millions of dollars. So when they intervened on me, I looked at them and said, let me understand this. And I painted the picture of where you were before I got involved, and here you are now. Do you really want to interrupt this process? You want to interfere with this? Leave me the fuck alone. And if you hadn't gotten sober in that moment... It's a who knows. And it, because You weren't willing to take that chance. They never threatened me, but I believed I would lose my job. And did you want recovery? No. No you were just like, I want this to work, though. You had seen your other thing not work. Let's remember, this is the little boy so ashamed of who he was that the fear of the possibility that I would lose that prestige... Right, was bigger than everything else. And the fear that if I didn't do that, I couldn't do anything else. I didn't know... I had so... My self-esteem was so in the shitter that I really believed that I was so lucky to be there the stakes were so high. If you had fucked it up, you weren't willing to, to live with that. And they were all from Boston. So I went to my first meeting two days later. And I, and I wasn't willing. I, I, I said no. And then Tyler calls me and says, you know, some bullshit, blah, blah, blah. Our relationship will never be the same if you don't get help. And, and I said, you know, th that's Tim, Stephen. That's Tim talking. He told you to say that. You know what I know. And, and he went, I know, I know. <laughs> and then he paused and he said, we love you and I don't want you to die. And I said, I was so like, it was a moment, right? And I said, fuck you, man. How? Oh, God. And I'd love to tell you, Dave, that it was because I had a child about to be born or it was to save my marriage or to, I was just so afraid of losing my prestigious role in the world. It's interesting because it's like another compulsion. Totally. That you weren't willing to part with that one, but that was a life-preserving so instinct. On January 6th, 1989, I went to my first meeting. It was an NA meeting. I was called on even though I didn't raise my hand, must have been arranged. And I stood up as people did in that meeting and I said, my name is Keith and I'm an addict and tears. And I wasn't owning it. I was just so fucked up and detoxing. <laughs> 10 days later, my daughter was born. And then do you think it was a matter of, I can't fuck this up? I, it's just like- I went to meetings believing Tim and the guys had spies, mostly Tim, in those meetings. So I was a smart guy. So I learned how to be able to regurgitate the literature, raise my hand in every meeting, do all, and I did. And it took about 18 months of my believing I didn't really, really need to be there. I, I heard a very wise woman once say she advised somebody to go to meetings until they liked it. Right. So I was at a meeting, and I heard, and there was a young kid who was new, and he said, I asked somebody to, to sponsor me, and the guy told me I had to follow these rules if I belong in the program. And I needed to follow those rules for him to be my sponsor. 
And my brain voice said, if somebody had told me I had to follow a bunch of rules when I came in here, that would have been the straw that broke the camel's back. And I would have said, fuck you. And I'd still be out there using. I didn't say it. A guy in the back of the room who looked just like Charlie Manson, who was a biker, who grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, in that, that area, right, suburb of Boston where I live now, with his buddies. They used together. They got high together. They got clean together. They scared me because I felt like I was an outsider and they were all like insider belonging guys. So they reinforced for me my own belief in reflection of them that I did not belong. And Billy, his name was Billy D. And, and Billy D raises his hand and he says, if somebody told me when I came in here that I had to follow a bunch of rules, I'd have told him to go fuck himself and I'd still be out there using. I had a spiritual awakening in that moment. And, and it felt like this. I had a warm chill just ran from head to toe through my body. And the words that I've been hearing over and over again, that when I compare myself, which I did every time I was in a meeting, to you, that I separated and I cut myself off from that power greater than myself, which was our connection. Right. I separated that connection. But when I could identify, I connected. And I identified with this guy who was as different from me as it gets. I was an Ivy League graduate. I was blah, blah, blah. He was a kid who got you know, thrown out of high school, graduated to get rid of him, snorted developer fluid behind the Polaroid factory in Cambridge to see what it would do. And, and I looked at him, and after the meeting, I went up to him, and I said, and I told him what I just told you. And he put his arms around me, and he pulled my head in close, and he whispered in my ear, and he said, keep coming, kid. <laughs> There you go. He and I became really, really close, and I loved him. I still do. You know, he died some years ago, and, and I was on a path of a new realization that just maybe, just maybe, maybe I belonged here. It's incredible. The only thing we missed is the story of the guy who blew coke up your butt. It was a, it was a woman. What was that story, real quick, before we're done? Well, you know, again, in those days of, of four or five, six days of you just you know, just snorting and smoking and pill dropping and drinking and just over and over and over again and, and sex and then attempts at sex when no body part could really show up for it and, you know, and, but still needing to get high. And you and weren't shooting. Being so clogged, not experimented, but not with any habitual use. It was too good. You mean intravenous? Intravenous was too Too good. much. I believed if I, if I used a needle, I'd be a drug addict. Huh. I get it. So yeah, so we were like, what do we, you know, so woman in the, in the place where we were all getting high who said, you know, I know how I can get some, some coke into you, into your body. And her method was to pack a straw and literally blow it into your ass. And how was that versus blowing it up your nose? So you tell me, Dave. I never had it up my butt. You don't have to. You're six days high, five days, no sleep. You don't know. It's all, it's all, it's all, it yeah. was just, I get it. It was just more of the actual, you know, inanity, depravity, kind of like, it had a, like, whoa, you know, it even had a, a distorted kind of a sense of some sexual possibility that, of course, didn't happen. I get it. And I, and I think, and I'm sorry for being the jerk off that needs that story before no, no, we finish. No, no, it's, it's, let's talk about that a little bit. It's an important story. Not, hey, look how cool that was. How fucked up that was. It was. The lengths you would go. 
how fucked up that was. Yeah. The desperation. Sure. The crawling around after nights and nights in a shag rug, pulling out what just might be a rock. It's fucked up. We talk about glorification before we started and, and like the problems with it. Can I just say, I don't have the glorification around, you know, crawling and looking for coke. Like, but even at this second, the idea of pulling a butt out of an ashtray and smoking it sounds, I'm sick. It sounds appealing to me. I haven't had a cigarette in years and years, but it sounds appealing to me. But you covered the bases. You brought us back to the, to the beginning and I appreciate it. And your story is awesome. And the work you do, and the way that you're presenting this, the, the, the reality of how you're willing, unlike a lot of people, to really capture the humanity from the insanity, but including a sense of humor about. And fun. Including the fact of our humanity is not all about recovery only. We're human. Keith, I love you. I love you right back. So that was my new friend, Keith. And I'm just excited to have him in my life. And I just, he has so much wisdom and he is a, he's a deep thinker, Keith Gard. And he's been through the mill and he's seen a lot of fucking shit. And uh, it's a joy to be able to share him with you. And hopefully we'll be able to get everybody on Aerosmith on the show after that. We'll see. It's probably doubtful. I know if he listens to this, he's going to get pissed at me. But I love Keith's story and I hope to hear from some more of the guys in Aerosmith as we move forward. But Keith really, really, really um, just has a beautiful worldview. And now we're going to hear from somebody else who has a beautiful worldview, my dad. All right, Dad, you're back on the show. Hello, everybody. Now, we have a bunch of things to talk about. Dopey Nation, you should know that for the past six weeks, every week, my dad has been asking me, where is the DopeyCon video? Where is the DopeyCon video? Now, the DopeyCon video is available on Patreon, and the first thing my dad said was, well, the DopeyCon video doesn't sound that good, David. Listen, the sound, the sound is not that great in a couple of places. For You know, it's over a two-hour show. I mean, it's a long show. And for most of the time, the sound is, is perfectly wonderful, perfectly good. Uh, there's a couple of times where you can't hear the person very well. And I try very hard to, you know, on my end, to raise the volume on the computer or on the phone. And I think everybody can do it. And then on the end of the show, when uh, Good So Bad is played, you have to make it lower volume because they overdo it and made it way too loud. Well, Other than that, hold up, hold up. I, I don't know if you yeah. know this. But the, the, the reason the Good So Bad video is like that was because we had to get, there's a guy named Edward Alloser in the Dopey Nation, yeah. and that was his recording because the sound guys, who we paid a lot of money to, were so high, they didn't realize that the mic wasn't set up for Good So Bad. And I actually, the other day, I was going back to your house, and guess who I ran into in the street? The sound guy? John Wetero who recommended the um, sound guy and who showed up at DopeyCon with weed and got high with the sound guy at DopeyCon in the, I think, in the church. So you know what I said I mean, to John Wetero? Don't ever come back. No, I just said you should never get high at DopeyCon. That's not the thing um, to do. 
And he said, and he got, oh. he like, he t- kind of turned red. And then I told him what happened and he was aghast. But I think he took a, a deep pleasure in the fact that he didn't fuck it up, that these guys fucked it up, which I thought was funny. Uh, so what's your well, review? Give us your DopeyCon video review besides the fact uh, that if it's loud, you have to turn it down. And if it's quiet, you have to turn it up. I, I know, but when we listen to that, the, the you know, uh, good so bad front on Facebook when that guy played it, it was perfectly wonderful sound. Why is it louder on on the DopeyCon uh, video? It's the same. It's the same. Don't just stop. Well, it's the same. Um, and Dopey Nation, this is what it's like dealing with a seventy-eight-year-old father if you don't have one. Uh, now, what about right. reviews of the video in in, in general? Oh, I, listen, it was very, very good. Uh, the Maya interview was great. Uh, Andy Roy and Novak was terrific. Aaron Carr was terrific. Um, it was it was very good. I mean, you know, I've, I've heard it. Obviously, I was there in person, so I knew what was coming. And uh, wow. it, was, it was very The funniest part, Dopey Nation, is that after my dad watched the video, I came back to his apartment and he said... Uh, he said, yeah, the sound wasn't that good, but you know what the best part of the video was? And he points at himself. Typical, <laughs> typical narcissistic personality. No one's ever diagnosed you as the narcissist that you are, but it, it's, a, it's a sickness. It's a serious, serious illness. Now, uh, do you want to talk? Wait a second. Hold on. You have, to let me, you have to let me respond. I didn't say that was the best oh. part of the show. Instead, I said I, I said at least that was clear. Oh, that is, no, that is little. not what you said. You nodded and you smiled <laughs> and you said the part with me at the end was definitely the best part. Oh, no, but well, that was because of the story, not because of me. That was because of you, your trickery. That was that was. Doping. My dad is very good. At, you know, no one's ever identified you as the narcissistic manipulator that you are. And I wonder, I, I wonder how I became so so crafty myself. But I think it's evident <laughs> in this conversation. Now, do you want to read a review, or do you want to talk about the horrible fantasy basketball league we're in? Uh, well, what are we tied for second? Is that what it is right now? Yes, but for the past two weeks, just tell the dopey nation who was in first place. Uh, Dopey Nation, David was in first place. Out, and of this league, out, of, out of this league of miscreants and diabolical <laughs> Board of Ed people, French characters, and Seymour is still in first place. Do you see there's a little movement in the Dopey Nation to beat Seymour? I think so, yes. I mean, we, we should have the theme, Pete Seymour, yes. I don't know who's more of a manipulator, you or Seymour. You grew up with Seymour, right, Dad? Yes, yes, yes. And when you were kids, and, and, who was more of a manipulator? Seymour was. Come on, I'm... <laughs> See, when we used to play basketball, he he convinced me that passing the ball was the, was the way to go so that he could score all the time. Yeah, I think you guys are both hopeless. Are you ready to read a review? Oh, listen, there happens to be four reviews in front of me. Two of them are five stars. Two of them are one stars. Two one-star reviews? Yeah, I don't know. Well, one of them we're not going to talk about. That's that, you know, the guy that you... But there's a new one-star review? Oh, yeah. You don't really want to hear it. Oh, no, I haven't heard that one. Oh, yeah, well... Uh, well, you want me to read it? I will read it. 
Oh Jesus! Hold on. Let me see. Let me see this thing. How did I? How did, when did that one pop up? Popped up uh, right after the DopeyCon was put on uh, on Patreon. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Do it. All right. Well, you want me to read? Right, I'll read that. That's the one star review by nickname two who took forever. And it's a one-star review, and it says, The new DopeyCon must win worst sound in a podcast award for life. And then he says something stupid. Now I'll never go. I don't understand that. Listen, nickname took forever. Don't come. We don't need you. You stay home while we go to have DopeyCon. And the sound at DopeyCon was actually great. The sound was was great. great. Yeah, Uh, Yeah, how can I exactly? How yeah, can- it was great. Yeah. I mean, that those sound people were terrible. Gosh. Well, they did a good job for the room, and they didn't do a good job for the podcast. Now read it. Now, now you want to read a, a five star, or do you want to read a fucking uh, one star? No, no, I'm not going to read that guy's one star. I'm going to read the five star. Okay. And this is uh, best recovery and addiction podcast five stars by Antonopoulos. Oh, Antonopoulos, I'm four years sober. And I love all the support and love in the Dopey family. I love the crazy stories and awesome insight when it comes to recovery. It's like yin and yang of the love of addiction and the blessing of recovery. Fab pod. So that's great. It's interesting. Do, do, who do you think this nickname took forever? The new DopeyCon must win worst sound in a podcast award for life. Do you think that's Seymour? No, but cut it out. Of course not. All right. No. And, and do the new Joey Pepper one star. I I thought I don't want to talk. Uh, he's not well. Joey, I, I don't what? think it's Joey Pepper. What's I mean, Joey Pepper. He just wants to get mentioned. Well, that's exactly what you're doing. I thought uh, I thought you didn't want to give him what he wants. I find Joey Pepper to be irresistible. Read the one star. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. This is one star yeah. by yeah. Joey Pepper. Yeah. Seventy-seven. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, yeah. He's uh, probably. A, I would imagine that he was born in 1977. Ah. Uh, Wow, young guy. All right, this is a good pa- this is a good podcast to fall asleep to. Oh my for god! Real. Oh my god! You want me to stop? No, I like this one. I like this one. <laughs> this podcast is not that good anymore. Yes. I try to be nice and tell Dave it's good, but it's not. Boring guests, boring stories. I don't have time to waste on dopey anymore. I'm out. Now goodbye, Joey Pepper. Okay. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, if if the last few shows of Dopey hadn't been so good, this this review might have bothered me. But I, I, I really thought the last few episodes were really better than they've been in a long time. So I feel like Joey's just looking for he's looking for a little mention. I don't think it's accurate. I don't I, this one doesn't hit close to home for me. Oh, good. Good. How about the sound one though? That should have hit close. Nah, off. this I, I don't listen. I, I don't feel good about the sound. I mean, we paid those guys a lot of money yeah. and they got high during DopeyCon. I mean, that's a it's a Shonda, right? It's a Shonda. No, it's absolutely a Shonda. Do you yeah, wanna read the last the last five star review and then we're gonna get you off the show finally? Yeah, good. Uh wait, wait, my version of a meeting? Yes. My, okay, let's see. Oh wow! His name, his name doesn't sound good to me. It's Zach Denver Jew. He's a Denver Jewish guy named Zach. All right, Dopey is the best podcast. Why, why, Dad, in Dad, the- Dad? What did you get from Zach Denver Jew? That's bad. 
I, I couldn't see it very well. And now, now that I see it's just, it's exactly what you said. And there's nothing bad about that. No, okay. zero. Okay. All right. So it said, he says, Dopey is the best podcast for people in recovery or thinking about recovery. Dave keeps me company on my long drive for work, and the stories from other addicts on the show are very relatable. Sometimes the show gives me cravings to back out and use, but for the most part, it puts a smile on my face. Toodles for Chris, Zach from Denver. All right. What do you think about that? I mean, like, you know, call your sponsor or, you know, go to a meeting. If you feel like using, definitely talk to somebody. Um, yeah, I get, you know, once in a while people say, see, it's interesting because that's the exact opposite of what Joey says. Joey says the stories yeah. are too boring, but Zach says the stories make him want to get high. Dad, have you ever heard a story about drugs that made you want to get high? No, no. But, but I, I tell you, you know, I, I never, I never even thought about it, but I can see that when you talk about how wonderful it is to do this when you're 65 years old and sitting back on a rocking chair. Yes. Um, you know, you're making it sound good. Yes. <laughs> you're making it sound good. But, you know, there was a discussion on Facebook about people being triggered by this stuff. And I guess they were serious about that. So what, what do you think about that? What was the discussion? What do I think? I think if they get if, if it's not good for them, they shouldn't listen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what exactly. would, I mean, there's no way to make a podcast that can entertain Joey Pepper, keep Zach sober, and not and and, and you know you can't do everything for everybody. You gotta just do your best. Yeah, we are hundred percent correct. Exactly, exactly. And if they think it's so harmful, they should they shouldn't listen. That's all. Absolutely. Or but you know, or or, or 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 skip ahead, or or find a different episode, or whatever. I mean, I didn't see that. Who, who was talking that it was triggering them? It was on the uh, uh, Dopey Nation Facebook page thing. What was the triggering incident? I don't know. The guy. He. he I don't think he mentioned that. He, he didn't. He didn't mention that. He just said. He just said that maybe there's something could be done. And you pretty much explained what could be done. He could skip to another. You know, he can just skip ahead, etc. Uh, you. You have so many thousands of people that are listening that they know what to do. They know when they, you know, when it's too much or when it's not enough. You know, everybody, you're right, has their own opinion about things. The bottom um, line, the bottom line is, is the show can't be everything. You know, it can't be everything. It can only be what it is, which is a dumb podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit and how to, you know, find some kind of fun and recovery. And, and for some people, there's not enough stories. And for some people... There is too many stories, and, and all we can do is just keep going. And you know what we do need, though? I was supposed to say it at the beginning of the show, and I'm going to say this now. I'm deciding that we're going to start the Dopey Internship Program again. We need interns. So if you want to be a Dopey intern, write an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. We need production interns. We need design interns. We need marketing interns interns we need publicity interns and uh we just need interns and we're about to relaunch the street team to get this thing where it's supposed to be what do you have to say about that uh i want to say two things about that oh, first God. of all yes well you asked you asked for information of from my school which i sent it to you and i actually could 
could mention it to my class. And I also want to mention Don't mention it. Don't mention it to your class. You don't you don't need them listening to the show. I don't want them to listen to the show. I just said if anybody wanted to wanted to get in, you know, be an intern in marketing or something like that, I can, you know, tell them who to contact. You're ma- it's it. your manipulation again. You'd be like, "Oh, my son has this podcast," and you'd start listing the episodes that you're on, right? Cut it out. All right, let me let me say I want you to un- I want the Dopey Nation to know that Linda was uh, at DopeyCon and she read a beautiful, beautiful statement that pretty much uh, says why, you know, thousands and thousands of people are listening to the show. And that, that's the answer to this triggering business, that thousands of people, well, now it's in the millions, have downloaded the show. And it, it, it seems to have done a lot of wonderful things. And that's, that's the whole point. We were talking, about, we were, we were talking about interns. What are, you, what are you talking about triggering? I, I, I wanted to get that in. That, that what Linda said it seems to be you know quite true uh, where where uh, the dopey nation certainly appreciates the show. Now before we go, there was a woman in Canada who was supposed to come to Dopeycon, but instead she relapsed. Her name is Lex. We had done a, a little voicemail and description of her a couple episodes back. She just sent in a video describing the story of what happened in more detail. I want to end the show with that. Um, I found it's very like it's funny, it's sad, it's it's graphic, it's crazy, but ultimately it's hopeful. And um, and if you guys want to get the free tattoo and you're willing to go up to Canada to do it. Um, Lex is willing to accommodate you, a couple of you at least. And and I actually got an email from this guy who says, uh, how many banger voicemail stories does it take to successfully bribe you into rigging this, I assume by now, international contest? I'm in northern Illinois and could drive straight up to Manitoba this winter since I'm a farmer and won't have anything to do. Do I have to send you a humanely pasteurized whole chicken? Lufa seeds, a picture of a crop circle design that spells out dopey. What will it take, Dave? What will it take? With warm regards, Andrew. Um, A crop circle design that spells out dopey would be great. Just fucking let me know. Write me again, Andrew, or I'll write you back. I think Lex will just give you a tattoo. Uh, Dad, have you ever considered getting a dopey tattoo? Uh, Not until this minute. I mean, uh, going to Manitoba in the winter doesn't sound like the greatest thing, but uh, but somebody, I guess Andrew is going to go, and that's great. All right. Well, thank you, Dad. We're going to end the show with Lex. Do you have anything you want to say to the audience before uh, we go? Uh, I just want to say stay healthy, everybody, and keep listening, and toodles for Chris. All right. Thank you, Dad. Here We're going to finish it with Lex, and... Uh, Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Hey, Dopey Nation. Hey, Dave. How's it going? Toodles for Chris. Uh, my name is Lex. I am a tattoo artist from Canada. What's up? How's it going? And uh, I am the dumb fuck that broke their jaw in multiple places and blew up multiple teeth. Just just being a special little idiot at the top of a ladder while high on a lot of cocaine after throwing away seven years of sobriety. Uh, <laughs> if you've listened to this week's episode of Dopey, I'm not sure when this is going to go 
up on anything or where it's going to go. But if you have listened to the episode of Dopey that I sent my voicemail into, then you have probably heard the story about how I broke my jaw. For those of you who didn't, I'll give you a quick little synopsis. So uh, in the process of trying to build my new tattoo parlor, I uh, hit a pretty good fever pitch of stress. I just, I wasn't functioning well. I didn't feel well. I didn't feel good mentally. I didn't feel good physically. And I got to a point with myself where I just didn't give a shit anymore. And um, that that was after seven years of being sober that I just stopped caring. And... I was sad. I was sad. I was alone. I felt really defeated. I felt like I wasn't going to get what I needed to get done, done. So I had a lot of, just a lot of stress that I wasn't managing well. So, uh, cocaine, all of it, all of it. And, uh, whilst doing all of the cocaine that you could possibly do, uh, I decided to try to hang a 200 pound chainmail chandelier. In the process of attempting to hang said chandelier, I uh, ate shit off a fucking 25-foot ladder. And had I not eaten shit off that ladder, going down the way that I did, I would have fallen over the other side about 30 feet, slammed my face into a concrete wall, and snapped my neck at the base of some very nice stairs, admittedly, but stairs nonetheless. Uh, (laughs) So it just wasn't a good situation, uh, and I needed to make some better choices. And so uh, I get to the hospital for them to hopefully fix me. Hopefully. I don't really know what the deal is at this point because I'm walking in there like this, holding my jaw, just like I fucked up and I got myself here by the powers of Coke. Um, (laughs) I need you to solve it. I'm a fucking amateur. Apologies for that. Uh, But I need you to solve it. And so uh, they immediately take me back and they are just like okay well we're, we're gonna run your blood like your face is swelling quite a bit we're a little bit concerned about the swelling that's going on we'd like to know why and what what's up they run my blood come back and they're like okay we know that you know but we need to like make sure you know that there's so much blow in your system, we can't put you under. And it, immediately I was just like, I understand. <laughs> I understand. I know, I know what I did. I, I like at, at the very least, I can say I know what I did. And so the doctor is like, okay, well, your only option, uh, because we have to do surgery now or you're going to die because of the bone infection, is for us to go in while you're awake. And I was just like, if that's my only option, then I guess that's what we're doing, isn't it? So sure enough, I uh, sign a bunch of paperwork and they just crack me open like a fucking egg, wide awake, wide awake. Um, yeah, so they just get right in there. They're digging the pieces of my teeth out of my jawbone. It's super graphic. It's super gross. It's super gory. Uh, I have the chunks for anyone interested. I don't know why you would be. It's fucking weird, but you know, I kept them. I'm fucking weird. So, you know, shout out to us. Shout out to us weirdos. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, so they do surgery. They get all the chunks out. And then right before I'm leaving the hospital, the doctor comes back and he says, Hey, uh, we have your painkillers here. And I was like, there's no way. 
They're not giving me fucking painkillers. Like, I just came here so loaded. Like, there's no fucking chance. Uh, and I was correct. I, I was right. Uh, he proceeds to hand me a combo pill of Tylenol and fucking Advil for my broken jaw. Tylenol and Advil. Okay. Okay. Cool. I'm glad we're on the same fucking page. So, uh, I take that bullshit. They load me up with some fent. Fuck yeah, let's go. Um, keep, just get me going. I'm just on, on your merry way, if you will. Get, get the fuck out of our, get the fuck out of our operating room. It's basically how they were like, just done with me. Uh, and I go home. And I'm just laying in bed. I take my Advil and my Tylenol because I'm starting to feel a little bit of the pain. And then out of nowhere, like a fucking freight train, the pain just punches through the fucking fentanyl. And I am feeling all of it. I'm feeling every fucking inch of the pain. And it is, oh, oh my God. Oh my God. I cannot even begin to fucking describe this, this level of pain. I'm at the point where I'm not even able to cry. I am just taking deep, deep inhales, hoping that like breathe, like something in my brain was like, if you get enough oxygen in your body, you'll feel a little bit better. Like, so I don't know what it was. I just needed more air (laughs) and uh nothing i did worked it was uh it was the most miserable shit i've ever felt uh it was the worst thing i've ever done and the thing that sucks is at the end of it i didn't feel like i had gotten anything out of it i just felt like i had lost and uh not only did i lose my seven years of of time but I feel like I lost a little bit of the respect that I had for myself at that point. And that really sucked because I had gotten really arrogant and uh, just really confident in my sobriety to a point, though, that I, I'd stopped maintaining it. I'd stopped up, like upkeeping my sobriety and I'd stopped caring about it. I, I didn't wasn't going to meetings. I I knew that I was struggling a little and I knew that I, I was kind of at a position where I probably would have benefited from meetings. And um, I chose the other direction. I, I chose to go back to drugs and uh, it's it sucks. I regret it. I hope that seven years from now, I get to say that I have seven years again. Um, I want to say that I will get to say that, but you know what I learned is that nothing is promised. And if you're not in a good place and you need support, you should be, you should be reaching out for it. You should be seeking it. You should, you should get it. And, um, yeah, so I'm just, I'm, I'm really grateful to be alive, <laughs> obviously. I'm very grateful to be back on the sober living train. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to share this very stupid fucking story with you folks. And uh, yeah, I'm grateful to get to help people and facilitate getting people back into sober living situations and uh, not feel like a giant hypocritical piece of shit about it. That's cool. So in with that being said (laughs) uh stay strong dopey nation you can do it and if you can't do it for yourself just try and if the best you can do is just exist then hey just just exist take a second to just exist and if you have to take it down second by second take it down second by second but you can fucking do this and 
I can fucking do this. We all can fucking do this. I believe in us so much. And if you're if you're staying dopey, all the power fucking to you, but stay safe and just make sure that you are keeping track of your shit and you're and you're keeping track of yourself and you're keeping yourself safe and you're keeping yourself alive because at the end of the day that's what fucking matters uh on that note i love you guys thank you so much dopey nation for everything that you have done for me you guys have saved my life thank you dave for creating such an amazing community of people and such a strong community of people who can be there for each other in some of the worst situations ever uh you guys are hardcore as fuck so yeah that's uh that's all i have to say for right now but yeah lex out toodles for chris stay strong dopes love you guys bye what's up dave and chris my name's jake i'm 25 years old from west virginia i just found dopey about two weeks ago and it's my favorite podcast of all time y'all are hilarious and it's just gotten me through some really hard times and Though I'm not clean myself, you know, it gives me a lot of hope for the future. Um, I really like Dave's song, and I'm going to do a little cover of it here on my banjo. Hope y'all don't mind too much. I wrote a uh, third verse myself. Sorry about the poor quality. It's just on my phone. uh, Sorry about the banjo. Things hard to keep in tune. sit through the uh, big inbox emails feel free to play a clip on the show if you want if not I know it kind of sucks
All right, uh, really appreciate it. Thanks, y'all.